to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Was the uh, squeaking stand part of the song too, Adam? Not really, okay. Luke chapter 2. Today we're going to conclude our series in which we've entitled It's a Wonderful Life, our Christmas series. And next week we'll get back to our tradition of going verse by verse, word by word, uh, through 1 Samuel. And uh, I must confess, um, I do not necessarily feel the most like preaching today. Um, and I told my wife, I said, man, I kind of feel like if I had someone to take my place, I might do that today. Um, but I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Sometimes getting back to a normal, comfortable thing can kind of make things go a little bit smoother. So Today we conclude our, our season, our series, It's a Wonderful Life, and I've entitled this Pottersville. I had something prepared, but somebody said something to me a few weeks ago that has stayed in my mind all week, and I kind of at the last minute changed what I wanted to do. See, our theme for Christmas is on my favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life. As we've said repeatedly, this movie is not about one man. It's about a family. And family was our theme in 2017. But the movie presents two different types of realities, two different types of worlds. There's Bedford Falls. Bedford Falls, the kind, polite, wholesome place, the place you would like to raise your family, the place you would like to be from. But the other reality, the other reality is Pottersville. Pottersville is a place of lust. It's a place of drunks. It's a place of rude people. It's a place of evil. And there's so many great social things that you could look at, the difference between Pottersville and Bedford Falls. One thing that always stands out, in Bedford Falls, the police are kind and polite. In Pottersville, the police shoot at George Bailey randomly down the street. It always bothers me. You know, there's a great point there that the police don't make a community. People make a community. The police have to work in the community. Great point there. I lived in Pottersville, actually. Not the actual city, but I lived in a Pottersville, a place called Pleasant Grove. It's a south suburb of Dallas. It's not a place where many people move on purpose to. And we lived there for a year, and we got out. Well, across the street, there was an empty house that was selling drugs. And then down the street, we finally moved after Reagan was born. And a lady and her two children were shotgunned to death, and it turned out to be by her cousin. Uh, being that it is Texas, I actually looked that up a few uh, years ago and found out they executed that man for doing it. But yay, Texas. But, uh, you know, America has become one large Pottersville. It used to be Bedford Falls, but now it's Pottersville. If you don't remember, I'll give you this little clip today about what Pottersville is like. Thank <laughs> you. 
seems like a lot of towns in America today, doesn't it? You know, I bet some of you can remember a time when Waterford didn't have a liquor store. Yet they're almost on every corner, it seems like. Some of you can remember a time when Pontiac wasn't the way it is today. When it used to not have bars, but it used to have churches and schools and businesses. Uh, Jean Raby called and I talked with her. And she said in her little town in North Carolina, they voted to, to go wet. And you know what that means. They used to be a dry county, a dry town. And they voted last year to go wet. And that means they allow the sale of alcohol in their town for the first time. You know, that seems like a lot of TV shows and a lot of things you see on, on, in movies. So what do you do? What do you do when you find out that the world you're living in, your town is Pottersville? Well, you could take your town, you could take your family and move to a mountain. You could cut off the internet, cut off TV, cut off movies and have no friends, no have outside, homeschool your kids and never let them talk to the neighbors, right? Because there aren't any neighbors, the neighbors are trees, right? You could do that. In fact, one man tried that. On February 1st, 1887, Harvey Wilcox officially registered the town he and his wife founded. The Wilcox had, had, had uh, lost his use of his legs to childhood due to polio and envisioned a land of a perfect utopian-like community of devout Christians where they could live a high moral life free of vices such as alcohol. Him and his wife started a new community in Southern California called Hollywood. Jesus never intended us to go and live in the mountains. In fact, John chapter 15, help me out there, Adam. It's not coming up for some reason. John chapter 15, or excuse me, 17, verse 15 and 16, Jesus said this, I do not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one, that they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. There's another way of saying this. Adam, help me out today. Another way of saying this, and you've heard a lot of preachers say this, be in the world, but not of the world. Meaning you have to live in this world. You have to live in Pottersville. You have to go to work in Pottersville. Your kids go to school in Pottersville. Your grandkids live in Pottersville. So what should you do? Run and never talk to anyone who's not saved in the rest of your life, right? That's not what Jesus said. He said, I don't want them out of the world but I don't want you to be of the world. You can live in Pottersville, but Pottersville doesn't have to live in you today. So here's my wonderful thought. My family can be safe in Pottersville. I, I want to push on two thoughts on that. I mean physically safe. You know, a lot of our young people are afraid to go to school. Some of them, I mean, it used to be, oh, it was just the kids in Detroit or kids in really bad neighborhoods. You thought about them going. That's not the case anymore. Columbine changed that. Even kids who live in affluent areas, kids who live in nice places, a lot of them are afraid of what's going to happen in school. But, you know, I'm not talking just the physical safety. If you're in God's will, you will not leave this planet until God says so. But you know what? You can also be safe that you can raise a good family in Pottersville. You can live for Jesus in Pottersville. And you know what? You can stay married in Pottersville. This is a thought I got from the movie. George changes Bedford Falls. It doesn't change him. Think about that. Um, without George, everything goes bad. 
He changed that community. That community never changed him. Now, here's the thought from the Bible. Christians change the world. The world doesn't change us. And I know it's real small print, but I put there Romans 12, 1 through 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable or smallest amount that God would expect, your reasonable service. And what does it say? And be not conformed to this world. Here's the problem that we did in churches that I grew up. We often thought of being conformed to this world about the outward appearance. Now, listen, my daughters dress modest, and I make sure that they dress modestly. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying how you dress and how you look on the outward doesn't really matter or anything. I mean, write tattoo murder on your forehead, see if you can get a job. So it it does kind of matter, right? But that's not the emphasis that he's talking about here. Because, look, I knew so many people in the right who wore the right clothes, who had the right Bible, who had everything that looked like the right. But yet deep down inside, they were not right with God and it eventually came out their life. There's a old school philosophy that if you change the outside, you'll change the inside eventually. I'm going to tell you something. That's not what Jesus said. But I'll say this to you. If the inside is changed, the outside will come along eventually. Listen, I'm not worried necessarily about your outward appearance today. That's not what he's saying about being conformed to the world. No, what he's talking about is transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm talking about something that goes deeper than wardrobe. When I was a young person, I attended this very strict Christian high school for one year. Woo, what a waste of time that was. But, and during the 80s, there was this whole trend. Some of you may remember it. I graduated in the 80s. I'm a child of the 80s. I didn't wear socks for four years. That was Miami Vice, okay? And uh, I just didn't wear socks. And so I attended this one Christian school my junior year and stuff. And I got called down and sent to the principal's office. Well, the principal wasn't there. So the vice principal that dealt with me, I didn't have socks on. That was a big deal. I didn't realize I had to wear them. It wasn't in the dress code. Nobody told me. I didn't wear socks. And the vice principal told me, he said, young man, you cannot be spiritual without socks. And I thought, does Jesus really care about hosiery? I just don't really think so. Listen, transform your minds by the renewing daily going to Christ. No one doesn't just fall into sin. I hate that term. Oh, I fell into love. No one fell into love. Like it's a pit, like it's a trap. Wait a second, there might be something. No. Fog, I'm in love. No one just falls into love. No one just falls into sin. It comes in your mind. You process it. You don't kill it. Then it goes into your heart. And after it comes, stays in your heart, it grows. And eventually it comes out in your hands in your life. And it destroys your life. How do you stop that, Pastor Steve? The potter's mills influence me by not conforming to this world, but being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Jesus grew up in Pottersville. Don't believe me? Well, he grew up in a town called Nazareth. And Nazareth was a trading route, which means it had a lot of undesirables came through Nazareth. And Nazareth had a bad reputation. Nazareth was considered the sin city of their area. It was a city of crudeness. It was a city not only of religious uh, uh, idolatry, but it was also a city of, of sexual sin. Okay, there. I hope that doesn't offend anyone. 
It was a city of sexual sin. It was known for that. In fact, don't you remember when Jesus comes on the scene and one of his own disciples, Nathaniel, will say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Jesus didn't live in the nice, wholesome little Bedford Falls. Jesus lived in Pottersville. And after going to the temple at age 12, he gets separated from his family. And there in Luke chapter 2, a small passage today, what we're going to look at. Luke, Jesus comes to the temple at age 12 on their way back. He gets separated and they realize they've left Jesus behind. Now, anyone who's part of a large family knows what it's like to be left behind. I'm the youngest of seven kids. I have been left at church so many times. Started to develop a complex about it. You know, once or twice is an accident, but you can start getting up into double digits. Someone's trying to get rid of you. But here's our passage today, a small passage we're going to look at. Luke 2, verse 51. On their way back to Pottersville, it says this. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There's this term about privilege. Certain people have privilege and certain people have different things. And I want to tell you something. I have a great privilege. I had a great privilege because I had a father in my home. I had an even greater privilege because I had a good father in my home. And I had an even greater privilege because I had a godly Christian father in my home. Amen. Jesus had a privilege. Jesus had an advantage that some people didn't have. And I want to show you out of this verse three advantages that Jesus had. Number one, he obeyed his parents. Look at verse 51. And was subject unto them. Obeying your parents is the only commandment that comes with a promise. It comes with the promise of long life. There's a few young people in here, but at 11 o'clock, I'm going to emphasize this heavily. There's always a few exceptions. There's always something. So if your dad's telling you to rob a bank, okay, don't do that, right? If your mom's telling you to join Al-Qaeda, she just wants to get rid of you. But don't, okay? So there's always a few exceptions in this rule as we go through this. But your life will be better as a young person if you obey your parents. Come on, that's where every parent just should be like, praise Jesus. I'm going to tithe more, right? Okay. Jesus did. And I want to emphasize this at 11 o'clock with our young people about the importance of two little words in their life. I do. It's probably outside of asking Christ in your heart. It's the most important sentence you will ever speak. And before you say I do to someone, you need to get help. You need to ask your parents and get your parents permission. You say, well, pastor, I don't live at the house. I don't. You still need to seek godly advice. You should ask your Sunday school teacher. You should ask a deacon. You should ask your pastor. You should talk to people that are authority over you and get their advice because maybe they see something in that person that you don't see. I do is a dangerous sentence to utter if it's to the wrong person. And adults, even though you've moved out and you're on your own, you still honor your parents. Jesus at 33, the Son of God, Jesus God, 33 years old, on the cross, what does he do? He takes care of Mary and says, Mary, John's going to be your boy. And John, you're going to take care of my mother from now on. You honor your parents. The second advantage that Jesus had is this, number two. He had a godly mother. Look at verse 51 again. But his mother kept all these things sayings in her heart. 
It is the parents' responsibility, not the school's responsibility, to teach your kids morals. It is your responsibility as mom and dad. Uh, my son, when he was 10, said, Dad, where do babies come from? So I said, okay, here you go. And I just sat him down and I told him everything. Uh, a month later, I told Sandra, hey, I gave him the talk and told her. She said, I don't think he's ready. He asked. And so she went and asked him and she went, he went, he did? He told him he could not remember any of it. And I told Sandra, I said, tough luck. I told him. <laughs> Never going to repeat that conversation again. And I've told him that before. And he's 18 now. And I'm like, if you haven't figured it out now, good luck. But... <laughs> You know, my parents never had the talk with me, never did. But you know, they had other talks with me about certain moral standards that we had in our home. They had, uh, my father never had a physical talk with me. But I can tell you something, my dad had a talk with me every day of his life about certain things, about getting up and going to work and providing hard for his family, about making sure his kids were in church, making sure his kids were provided for. Uh, making sure that he, we knew who Jesus was. My father was faithful to my mother until the day he died. My father never had a physical talk, but he talked to me every day of his life about what was important. Parents, it's not the police responsibility to teach your kids right and wrong. Listen, I want to, I want to say this. You got parents in here. Listen to me. They go to school, right? That teacher is out to get my son. I would like to tell you this. Someone who was a teacher. Yes, they are. And there's a pretty good chance your son deserves it. Because after a while, you get a little tired of certain kids. And when you get an opportunity to bust them, you bust them as a teacher. You say, well, that's not fair. Okay, it doesn't matter. Because what you know what your kids are going to have? Your son is going to have a police officer who pulls him over who's out to get him. I got pulled over one time by this little cop. This little girl in downtown Rochester, what a speed track, right? Goes from 45 to 25. I've lived there my whole life, and still I got pulled over. And this little girl cop who couldn't have been five feet, if she weighed 100 pounds, I'd be shocked. And she pulled me over and everything. You know what I said? Yes, sir. No, sir. Yes, sir. No, sir. And they went, oh, yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. I was mad. I could have gotten out, and I could have smacked her around. Said, I'm not going to pay your stupid ticket. I'm not. That's not the way I behave myself. Because when I was a little boy, through that same little stretch, I saw my father get pulled over, coming home from a Lions game. And I saw my father, car full of seven kids, and my dad decides to drag race a bunch of teenagers down Walton Boulevard. He won. We got there, and the cop pulled him over, and I knew it was, it was October 3rd. I know it was October 3rd because my dad's birthday was October 2nd, and the cop said, Mr. Sheridan, not only were you drag racing with seven kids in the car, your license is expired. <laughs> and I remember being a little kid thinking, this is the greatest day of my life. <laughs> and, and I remember watching my father in that same situation say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. And you know what? After there's a police officer out to get your son, your son's going to get married. And there's going to be a woman out to get him, too. It is your responsibility to teach your kids right and wrong. Again, there's some few exceptions that take place. And there's a time to disobey the government. I understand that. But on whole, if you find a man of God, if you find a godly man, you can almost always guarantee there's a godly mother behind him. Timothy? 
Well, if you read your Bible, there's a young preacher by the name of Timothy, raised by a single mom, raised in Pottersville, raised by a godly woman, and she raised a man of God. Advantage that Jesus had? Number three, he had knowledge. In verse 52, it says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The word wisdom there is actually the word, Greek word Sophia. And it's the Greek word Sophia, and it means a broad, full of intellect, intelligence, use of knowledge, very diverse matters. It's talking about science and learning. Can I just say this to you? Uh, we have placed too much importance on degrees in our culture and not enough on knowledge. Many schools are diploma mills, but many of them are also indoctrinating, not educating our next generation. Young people, maybe you're not expecting me to say this as a pastor. Question everything. Question everything. Question the Bible to global warming. I say that tongue-in-cheek today. What is it, two degrees? You ever notice people who complain about global warming live in places that are hot? Nobody in Alaska or Canada, oh, global warming. No, it's always these warm anyways, but all right, let's keep going. Question everything. You know why? Because if it's true, it holds up to scrutiny. Always be learning. Never live with, well, this is the consensus thought. Always question everything. That doesn't sound like maybe a preaching message you sort of expect out of a church or anything. But listen, the church was always the center of learning. It was the Christians who brought education. It was the Christians who taught the slaves to read. Sunday school was founded on the idea of teaching kids, little boys and girls, how to read and write. By the way, teaching little boys and girls who lived in places that were like Pottersville. That's how Sunday school began. Believer in Jesus Christ, never give up learning more. Because if it's true, you don't have to run from it. Do you notice what's on or what's not on what I've said here? You notice wealth isn't there? We are a wealthier society, but are we a safer society? Do you notice that government is not there? Can I just a little pause? I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say this. You'll notice government's not there because government's not the answer to the solution for these problems. Government is usually the problem to these problems. No government policy can do what a strong father in a home can do. Amen? You say, well, I don't need a man to raise my kids. Well, listen, you need a strong male influence. I want to tell you something. You see me and you see a well-educated, charming, good-looking, talented man. Very modest. I mean this in all honesty, though. The only reason... I'm alive is because of my father. The only reason. I remember being a kid in kindergarten and kind of going, eh, running around and stuff. I don't know what they would have classified me then back then. Who knows? They would probably put me on medication or something like this. I got sent home with a note. Stephen is not behaving in kindergarten class. Bruce read that. That was my dad's name. The last time I misbehaved. Didn't even have to hit me. Didn't even have to spank me. Just looked at me and said, you going to do this again? No, sir, I will not do this again. I will never behave. You know what? Never acted that way at any time in my life. When I, my son, teenager, so wonderful. My son's 18, and you know what he thinks is the coolest thing? And he's doing it right now. If you see him in the hallway, tell him he looks stupid. He's growing a mullet. 
know what a mullet is, where it's short in the front and long in the back? Yes, that was me, 1988, right? I had hair that went down to here, but I had shorter hair than I have now. And uh, my mother, I made the mistake of letting my mother sit behind me one Sunday in church. And my mom sat behind me, and then that next Monday, my mother announced, you're getting a haircut, you look like a girl. And I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. I said, no, I'm not. She said, yes, you are. I said, I am leaving. She said, I will call your father. I said, I'm getting a haircut. No government program can do what a father can do. Right now, I want to completely change directions. I want to talk about change shifting gears here for a second. Two of my favorite things in the world to do are to ask questions to people and to make Sandra, my wife, laugh. If she laughs, I don't care what it is. I will continue doing it. It could be the dumbest thing in the world. When she laughs, she is so beautiful. She has this beautiful smile. Her eyes sparkle and stuff. And so and this week, <laughs> not my finest moment, but I'm going to tell you, this week we had to go get our fingerprints printed. Every six months or seven, as a foster parent, you have to get your fingers printed. And so we had to go to this place in Shelby Township where I grew up and stuff, over on 22 and Van Dyke and stuff. And we had to have our, our fingers printed, and they, they do background checks on you and everything. And we met one of the rudest personality-wise, ugliest ladies I've ever met who was run there working at the place. Uh, apparently, one of the qualifications of working at a fingerprint background check is that you could not pass a fingerprint background check. But she acted, I mean, she, I think she just got out of prison. She was so rude and obnoxious and everything. She did a whole bunch. So she starts off with me and stuff, and she starts asking me normal questions you would expect for, you know, background check. She said, you know, what's your address and stuff, and your name, what's the last four digits, your social security. And then right out of left field, she's looking down. She never even acknowledges me and stuff. She just goes, and how much do you weigh? How much do I, what does that have to do with a background check? Are fat people more prone to commit crimes? Uh, I was like, she never asked my height. She never asked my eye color. She just randomly said, and how much do you weigh? And so, you know, being a good American, I lied and told her a number that wasn't true because I'm not telling her. <laughs> and, and I sit there and I was like, really? And I looked over at Sandra and Sandra was like, yes. Yeah. So I could not resist. And as she's doing all this other stuff, I said, well, well, how much do you weigh? <laughs> and I could feel Sandra try not to laugh. Which, like, is gasoline on a fire for me. If I think this is making Sandra laugh, I am doubling down. And so I started asking her more questions, and she completely ignored every question I had as I'm going through it. And I eventually said, you know, failure to confess is a sign of guilt. And Sandra's just laughing. <laughs> she's like, and this lady could care less, and she's just going through it. Okay, I said all that because it just made me laugh. But I said all that to say this. I want to ask you some questions today. For 2018, I want you to look back on your year, and I want to end my message with some awkward maybe questions. Question number one is this. Am I more like the world in my morals, values, and priorities in 2017? Morals. What are morals? Morals are what is right and wrong concerning physical intimacy. Am I more like the world or less like the world from 2017. From this point last year at 2017, am I closer to the world or am I less like the world in how I consider right and wrong about physical intimacy on these issues? Values is what I believe is important. 
You know what's important, believer? Evangelism. Can I just ask you a simple question? You want to judge yourself? Am I getting closer or like, less like Jesus? Evangelism is not winning people to Christ and actually having them say the prayer. That's not it. That's God's responsibility. Evangelism is telling people. Sometimes people will just constantly reject you. That's not your problem. That's not your, you're not supposed to get them saved. That's God's issue. He leads them. Your responsibility is just to simply tell them. If someone said evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where they can get bread. If that beggar chooses not to go get the bread, that's up to them. But sir, ma'am, how many people did you tell about Jesus this year? And priorities, what's number one in my life? Can I suggest that this is why there's more places like Pottersville? Because Christians are becoming in these areas and these issues more like the world and less like Jesus. Awkward question number two. Do I have unconfessed sin or unforgiveness rotting me from inside? Sin and not forgiving someone who's wronged you. You say, but you don't understand what my ex-husband did to me. I could be horrible. You're completely right. But you're still called to forgive that person. Doesn't mean you have to bring them back in your life. Doesn't mean you ever let that person around your grandkids. You're still called to forgive. And sin and unforgiveness, bitterness begins to grow inside you. You've seen that person. You can just see the bitterness over their life. It was always interesting to me to watch kids in high school as in student ministry. You'd see pictures when they were freshmen. Smile, happy, and sophomore, eh, junior, oh man, and by the time they were senior. And you could kind of see something took place at some point in their life. Usually it's unconfessed sin. You can see it in a, a lady a senior citizen lady who's bitter, who's upset about everything that's gone on. It's not fair my husband passed away. It's not fair that this happened to me. It's not fair. And bitterness takes over. You have an unconfessed sin issue? You got someone you need to forgive? Awkward question number three. Am I quick to follow God's authority? Someone has said there are three ways to get something done. Number one, do it yourself. Number two, hire someone to do it. Number three, forbid your kids to do it. God places a high priority on authority in your life. And he's put people in your life. He's put parents. He's put police in your life. Amen? Somebody got a ticket this week. He's put parents. He's put police. He's put pastors in your life. He's put paternal grandparents. I couldn't think of another P word. He's placed authority in your life. Am I quick to follow God's authority? Number four, do I hear God's call for my life? Our family had a tradition when our, our oldest three were younger. Every year we would go and watch at the uh, down in Dearborn, the, uh, uh, the IMAX, the, the movie Polar Express. This sort of became a Christmas tradition. And stuff. In that movie, there's part of it, the bells ring. And if you know that movie, if it, you can't hear the bell because you don't believe in Christmas anymore. And I've often thought about that. How many people like that bell ringing? They can't hear it anymore. How many people got calling you? And you just tune them out. You know the thing that drives me crazy the most is when Sandra doesn't answer my phone. I'll call her all the time. In fact, I just called Bell 
and I have to reach her and stuff. And I tell her all the time, one day I'm going to be in a pit and I'm going to need you and you're not going to be there. And she's like, I didn't hear the phone. I'm like, yeah, you can hear the phone when it's... Anyway, you know, God is constantly calling you. You say, well, God called me when I was 16. You're talking about young people. No, no. God called you, and God called you, and God called you. He calls you to new areas. He's calling you to something new in 2018. He's calling you to a new area of ministry. He's calling you to reach people. He's calling you to do something you've never done before. I say this all the time. You're going to die somewhere, someplace. Why not die doing something God's called you to do? Spend your kids' inheritance for Jesus. Do something crazy that your grandkids freak out about for Jesus. Lastly, number five, I guess maybe it's the most important of these awkward questions. Am I a Christian? Probably the most important question you'll ever ask. The gospel is this. Sin has separated us from God. We've all inherited it from Adam. But God loved us so much, he sent Jesus. Jesus was God come in the flesh. He died on a cruel Roman cross after living 33 sinless years to be the payment for you and for me. There is no other possible answer. What separates Christianity, true Christianity, from any other religious type of group, and I hate that word, but from any other religious type of group is simply this. They are all telling you to get to heaven. You have to be a good person or do this and do this. Jesus said this. There's nothing you can do. The only way you're getting to heaven is by accepting me and asking me to be your payment for your sin. All it takes is faith. And by the way, if I'm wrong, okay. But if you're wrong, wow. It's a Wonderful Life was a controversial film. And during the time it was made in 1946, they had a movie code and a movie ethics. And they broke the, one of the rules of the movie code. And one of the rules was this, and they almost didn't make the movie because of this. One of the rules was this, is that people had to come be accountable for their actions. Bad people had to be held accountable. And Mr. Potter is never held accountable for the $8,000 he steals. I was in doing this last night and thinking about this. I added that I went on a website that calculates inflation. Do you know what $8,000 is today? It's $108,000, basically. He basically stole over $100,000 from George Bailey. And Mr. Potter, as far as the movie goes, gets away with it, and nobody ever knows. In fact, last week, CNN, one of their uh, hosts on the shows and stuff that they had, said that It's a Wonderful Life should be banned because it's a sexist movie, even though the strongest character in the movie is a woman by the name of Mary. Mary's the hero of the movie and said it's a sexist movie and it should be banned. But you know what actually the most controversial Christmas movie is? A Charlie Brown Christmas. A Charlie Brown Christmas. I, this is interesting. I found this. Uh, um, Matt Klanick, who grew up in Georgia, so you know I don't believe anything he says, but... Um, he told me this story, and I kind of looked it up, and then I saw it on a news uh, uh, website this week. And it talks about a Charlie Brown Christmas. A Charlie Brown Christmas had to be something, Charles Schultz said, namely the true meaning of Christmas. Otherwise, Schultz said, why bother doing it? Charles Schultz was a believer, by the way. To the Coca-Cola, who was the sponsor of it, to give them credit, the corporate sponsor never balked at including the New Testament passage. The result? Linus reading from the book of Luke about the meaning of the season became the most magical two minutes 
of the, any animated TV produced. One of the executive producers said that he and the animator fretted over the insistence on the Peanuts creator Charles Schertz that insisting that the gospel had to be in it, saying it would kill the movie. We told Schultz, one of them said, look, you can't read from the Bible on network television. When we finished the show and watched it, I looked over at the other producer and said, well, we've ruined Charlie Brown. But CBS had made a commitment to their sponsor. So they aired the special scheduled on December 9th, 1965. And as often happens in the world of entertainment, the original uh, gut reaction of the suits was completely wrong. A Charlie Brown Christmas drew over 15 million viewers, placing it second in the readings behind Bonanza. A few months later, Charles Schultz and one of the producers found themselves on stage accepting an Emmy, an Emmy for Outstanding Children's Program. They would be lynched today. And in case you don't remember, the iconic moment, the moment that caused all the controversy was this. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign to you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was an angel of multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That was on national TV. Because one Christian didn't accept Pottersville as the norm. You're a single mom. You're a student afraid for your safety. You're a marriage barely holding on. You can be safe in Pottersville if you know Jesus. If you know Jesus. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No matter what happens in the world, no matter what takes place, no matter what law is passed, no matter what politician says this, even if we go to war, I want here to assure you something. If you know Christ as your personal Savior, you are safe. You are safe because you will not leave this world until God is ready for you to leave it. And you can raise good kids and you can have a strong marriage. And you can serve Jesus, even in Pottersville. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to preach and to give your word today. Lord, we have so many people gone traveling, take care of them. But Lord, this group of people you brought here together to hear this, to end this year and ask them some questions. Lord, help us to have the right answers. Most importantly, if I am truly a believer today. Bless us, Lord, as a church, as a group of believers, as a family, Lord. Help us to be a shining hill in a dark, dark community. In Jesus' precious name, amen.